all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of this podcast and of the Covey Club. I have a very interesting person who in her own life shows a contrast between two very similar things. She has done many, many things with her life. She has, she has reinvented many portions of her life, her marriage, her religion. Um, she has been a therapist by training and she says a coach by choice. And um, often we struggle with what's the difference between a therapist and a coach. And she explains it incredibly well and also explains how you know whether you're ready for coaching or not and where it can help you in your life if you're so interested. And also how to create change in your life that is positive for you. Um, some of us, Diane Wingert is her name, um, like me and, and Diane, we're kind of, you know, some of us are just like change junkies. We're cool with it. We are brought up with it by hooker by crook and, and that's what we know. So we're cool with it. Um, but there's a way to, to know how to introduce change into your life in a way that's positive. And again, also to know that reinvention doesn't have to be everything. You don't have to do what Diane might do, which is, you know, reinvent your religion, reinvent your family, reinvent your career. Like you don't have to do all that. It can be a small, subtle, as she says, pivot, or it can be gigantic. It's really up to you, but it is all about mindset. And that's what she brings to the table. So I welcome you to meet Diane Wingert. Hi, Deanne. How are you? I'm so glad you're here. I will hang out with you any place, anytime, <laughs> anywhere. Me we too. think a lot alike. So we sure do. I love the fact uh, we were just talking before we started this. I mean, we were going to talk about you being a therapist and then moving over to being a coach because that's a really interesting transition. But then you also mentioned to me that you have many transitions. You've been married several times. You change residency several times. You even changed your religion. So you are probably the biggest change artist that I know. So I think that's very interesting. Maybe let's start with, you know, one of the big issues for people is like, do I need a therapist or do I need a coach? And for people like me who did my 25 years of therapy, I was very skeptical of coaching. I was like, I call coaching in many cases, the new real estate where a lot mm -hmm. of people who don't know what they want to do next, they're like, oh, I'll just be a coach. I'll figure it out. And um, some people are, are coaches who should not be coaches because they haven't figured themselves out. Um, but what's the difference and how, and why did you make that transition? This is one of my favorite questions. So I'm glad we're starting with this because I get asked this all the time. First of all, there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into becoming a therapist. You have to get a master's degree or a PhD. You do a lot of supervised practice. Even after you complete your academic training, you do another 3000 plus hours of supervised practice. Then back when I was getting licensed, you had to pass a written exam, then an oral exam. You have to do continuing education units. You have to relicense every two years. There's a lot of rigor and there's always the possibility of getting sued because you are in a highly regulated industry. And that's as it should be because you have the opportunity to do harm. 
So it doesn't surprise me at all that coaching has just become like the new wild, wild west, because a lot of people like to say, I'm a certified this coach, I'm a certified that all certifications are made up, completely made up. Some of them are more legit than others, but legally, from a legal point of view, anybody can be a self-anointed, self-appointed, self-proclaimed coach, anyone. And that's why there's a lot of, there's quite a variety of people in the field. Some coaches are excellent, far better than many of my former therapist colleagues, in spite of all their training and education. But I think to be a really good coach, you have to have ethics, you have to have boundaries, you have to understand your scope, and you have to stay in your lane. And a lot of coaches don't, which is why you and many people have good reason to be skeptical. So why would I, so my husband first heard about it, he said, why would you throw away all that you have done to become, you know, and I had a very successful private practice to identify and associate with what, what he used to call shamelessly self-promoting know-nothings. And here's why. First of all, when you are a licensed therapist, you are only licensed in the state where you live. And he was ready to make his next change in his career, which I knew for a fact meant we were going to leave California. Didn't know where we were going to go, but we were going to go somewhere. At this stage of my life, Leslie, I really did not want to earn my credentials all over again somewhere else. So there was the practical aspect. But additionally, when you work as a therapist, there are two things that I came to find as very limiting. One, in a way, you really do need to move at your client's pace. And if your client needs 15 years to recover from a loss, then that's the pace pace that you move at. I became very impatient for doing work that was that slow. Also, I became disenchanted with talking so much about problems. And I started really wanting to talk more about possibilities and potential. So there came a point where I recognized I'm really not well suited to being a therapist anymore. I'm really, I have evolved into the place of a coach. Now, to specifically answer your question about when, when do you work with one or the other, I do not disparage therapy. I have been a beneficiary of therapy on many occasions in my life. I think therapy is the correct tool, if you will, the correct modality. If you are dealing with the effects of abuse, trauma, addiction, or loss. But there does come a point when you have been healed from that experience. And now you're kind of going because you're in the habit of going. And especially if you're seeing someone in a private practice, it's in the therapist's interest to keep you going. I cannot tell you how many people I have met who said, well, I kind of felt like after a while in therapy that I had dealt with the stuff that brought me there. And now it was kind of a comfortable habit where I could meet with someone who always supported me, who always listened to me, who always took my side. And I could just kind of go through the high highlights and the low lights of the week. And I said, you could have a journal 
for that. You could have a best friend for that. Hell, you could go talk to a bartender for that. That's a paid friendship. And at that point, in my opinion, it's no longer therapeutic. So if that's where you are and you're seeing a therapist, you are probably ready for a coach. And the therapists are not likely to kick you out because it's lucrative, right? Well, I think, you know, this is the ethical side of it. You know, I, I had a former therapist uh, colleague who very proudly bragged to me that they had been seeing the same therapy clients for anywhere between 15 and 25 years. And before I could inhibit myself, I said, shame on you. And they were sort of shocked and offended. And I said, do you mean to tell me you can't help anyone get to the point they don't need you anymore? Like in my opinion, and I, I am very different than many therapists and probably one of the reasons why I no longer am one, I think as a parent, as a therapist, as a consultant, as a, I was a supervisor and a trainer. I brought many people into the field as a professor. I always felt like I should be working my way out of a job one day at a time. But most of my colleagues felt like there was nothing wrong with people staying in therapy indefinitely. I totally disagree. Yeah. And I, I, I was, I got frustrated by the lack of forward movement of, okay, so I know that I've dealt with all this stuff. I understand my motivations. Now, how do I move forward? Right. Talk about that. Like, what do you do now? What do you do? I'm enlightened. Now, what do I do? (laughs) And it's almost like, it's almost like maybe therapy needs to meld with coaching or something, or needs to be a, a, you know, an automatic handoff at a certain point, because it's kind of the other side of it. It's kind of I mean, it's very hard for some people to move forward until they understand the anchors dealt with that. Like you need to move forward, like, but no one moves you forward. You got to find this whole area yourself. So I'm very much a big believer. I don't believe everybody is good at it. The question is, how do you find somebody that is right for you? And again, like you said, there's a, I mean, I, you know, in the beginning, when I got into this, there's, you know, I laugh. It's like, I'm a health coach. I'm a brain coach. I'm a, uh, you know, children's difficulty coach. I'm like, okay, like it's getting silly. How do you find it? How do you find the right person too? I think it, it's, we are in a place now where it really is more than ever a let the buyer beware uh, kind of situation because you know, as a therapist, I was a professional. I had a professional network. I was referred to by other professionals, by psychiatrists, by physicians, by other therapists, um, by satisfied clients. So it was a referral only basis. And that meant that whoever came my way, there was already kind of, I was already sort of vetted in a way. And that was a wonderful thing coaches really do need to market themselves because it's not by and large a referral based thing. So unfortunately, well, fortunately, there's a lot of people available to help you. Unfortunately, it's really up to the individual to figure out who they can be helped by. So I think we do need a certain amount of self-awareness. But I think if you are looking for a coach or or therapist, as I said before, abuse, trauma, loss, or addiction, those are the big 
red flags. If someone says I'm a trauma coach and they are not also a licensed therapist, I would not work with them. If they are proclaiming they are a recovery coach or this coach or that coach, what ends up happening is a lot of people become coaches because they've had personal experience with something. And then they have worked through it and dealt with it and recovered from it. And now they believe that gives them the credentials and the qualifications. They believe they are qualified to help other people. But something I've learned from my own life journey and from the massive amount of education I had to have to become a therapist is that human beings are very different and very nuanced. So just because you were an alcoholic or you were a binge eater or you compulsively dated all the wrong men or you did whatever your thing is that you now coach other people on, you probably have a lot of blind spots because you do not understand that what worked for you is not necessarily and automatically going to work for everyone else who wants the same outcome that you have been able to achieve. And what I have seen in the coaching industry that literally makes my hair stand on end is that people package up their programs and they offer them in a very shiny, compelling way. And of course, everybody wants the easy, quick and painless way to deal with difficulties. And when it doesn't work, the one who gets blamed is the client they weren't committed enough. They were resistant. They were, so now the person's invested in your solution, didn't get the outcome they wanted. And now they have to feel even worse about themselves than they did before they hired you. This is unfortunately rampant in the coaching industry. And some of my peers have told me, you need to find another term for yourself beyond coach because you are not like everyone else. Now I interview every single person before they work with me. And I turn away people all the time because I'll say, trust me, when I tell you, you are not ready for this. You need some more therapy first, or you need to figure out what your specific goals are first. I understand that women at midlife are often feeling very stuck and confused. And many of us go through periods where we're like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want, but it can be very dangerous if you hire a coach to help you figure out who you are and what you want, because there's so many differences between people in that, that it's really not quite goal directed enough. And you're very likely to get influenced to want what that person thinks you should want or what they think they see in you. And you can end up spending a lot of money and a lot of time and actually getting nowhere. I think the best thing to point to, to know when you're ready for a coach is, do you have specific goals or desired outcomes? You know what you want, but inexplicably, you do not seem to be able to get there or even get on the path, but you actually know what you want. Then finding the right coach, I think it really comes down to goodness of fit. Don't be seduced by the shiny website, the number of Instagram followers, and all the wonderful testimonials. I personally 
expect someone to spend a few minutes with me in a consultation call that is not just a hardcore sales call, but where we're actually getting to know each other and good questions are being asked. And the coach is willing to say no, if the person isn't the right fit. My standards at this point in time are that I will not invite someone to become a client unless I am 100% confident that I can help them achieve their desired outcome. If they don't know what their desired outcome is, or I don't think they're ready for coaching, or their personality is not a good fit, because as you can see, I'm very direct and opinionated. I will not invite them to become a client because I don't want to take their money and waste their time. But a lot of coaches, they're, they're more than happy to take your money and waste your time. And then when you don't get what you want from it, they'll blame you. Very interesting. That's super interesting. Um, along that line, it, it's, it, it's interesting that what we've done with Covey, you know, in the beginning, I thought, because we help women through these transitions of figuring out what's next. I thought in the beginning we had to figure out for them what it was and what we what we realized, which was more valuable. And it kind of works with what you're saying. If you're not ready to, for coaching and you don't know what your goals are, is we say we hold a space for you while you figure out what's next. Yes. And so we hold that space. We introduce you to other women. We connect you with a learning that is in all these areas. And then you decide what's right for you. Nobody else is telling you. And if you want coaching, we have coaches, but yes. um, you decide what is right for you. And that's very, very interesting. What, what kind of things, if somebody's listening, um, are ready for coaching goals? Can you give us an example of like two or three goals that are ready for coaching? Absolutely. Because I work with women, for me personally, I work with women who have been successful in a corporate nonprofit or academic career. So they know how to succeed in a structured system where the expectations are clear. And it's very obvious if it's working or not, you get promotions, you get raises, you, you know, your network grows, people respect you and so forth. And then they decide to become solopreneurs. Often they're coaches or consultants. Sometimes they start a, a brick and mortar building and sometimes they sell products. But a lot of the people I work with take their expertise and their experience and they want to translate that into a coaching or consulting business. If they're ready for coaching, they understand that they will need to learn new skills and adopt new ways of thinking. They also need to understand that they need to unlearn a lot. For example, waiting for permission. Sometimes in a corporate or nonprofit or academic career, you know, you kind of need to wait your turn. You need to um, somewhat, it's, it's almost like mother may I, you know, am I ready? And oftentimes what happens in your path is determined by other people right? It's, it's kind of a little bit of a game. Now you are a solopreneur. Now you are the one who signs your own permission slip. Now you may not have thought about it that way. I have all my little euphemisms, all my little analogies and metaphors, but if you are not ready to be the one to sign your own permission slip, um, it might be difficult for you to be a solopreneur. Can you be coached on adopting that mindset? Absolutely. It's one of the things I do. 
um, being able to take risks and even fail without thinking that means I'm a failure. That means this isn't the right path for me. That means I don't have what it takes. No, it doesn't. I think we need to really completely transform our relationship with failure if we're going to be successful working for ourselves. So sometimes people think they want to be solopreneurs because maybe it's trendy, because maybe they're having a hard time finding a job at, at midlife, or because someone they know is doing it and they seem to be having so much fun. I don't personally think it's for everybody. Um, but I think if you really, really want it and you're willing to do the work, it can absolutely be for you. It's very different and very hard and hilariously, very different. I was, it took me six months after I left corporate, I was in a big giant lumbering public company. And it literally took me six months to stop asking permission because there you had to, it was like the army. Yes. You had to send, you had to send a request up and it sat on a general's desk for three weeks. And then when you hounded them, they were like, oh, it's on the other general's desk. And then, I mean, ever they were a media company, but they moved. It's no wonder they went under because it just, they moved so slowly. You were like, how could this be media? It, it's run like the army. It, you can't run media like the army. You just can't. No, that, so, that's terrible. But you're, you know what, actually, I think when you say it took me six months, obviously six months. you yeah. have, you have very high standards because six months and then you realized, oh, I've got to stop waiting for someone <laughs> just else. Do it. That, just no, do it. That's, yeah. that's very, that's very fast, Leslie. I, you know, a lot of the women that I have worked with say, I know what to do. I know how to do it. I'm just not doing it. And oftentimes they need to really systematically deconstruct all of the conditioning that they've had throughout their career to seek approval, right? To seek permission, right? And to avoid failure. Oh, you right. got to flip all that around. Well, and it's a, it's a pretty big changeover. When in the past you could say, oh, that was that idiot above me. And now yes. you're the idiot above you. Yes. You're everything. So there's no one to blame. So it's a lot scarier because now you, you will be the idiot who screwed things up, you know, so I can understand that. Let's talk a little bit about your other changes. So you like change. What, what, I do. Is, what is in your background that led you to love change? I, I, I love change as well. And that's because my dad um, was in the military and we moved a lot. I mean, I had no childhood because we were every two or three years we were moving, even though he was a doctor. And then he just kept moving. I think he just, he was that kind of person. Mm -hmm. um, I respect it better now. It was a horrible childhood because I had no friends, but mm. um it, uh, you know, it serves me now, but is there something, some reason why you're so adaptable to change? Yes. Two reasons. One, I happen to have ADHD. And so I need a lot of stimulation. I need a lot of, uh, creativity. I need a lot of movement and I need a lot of change. I have a low threshold for boredom and a low tolerance for boredom. So I am 
more resilient and more adaptable because when you have a low tolerance for boredom, you will do things that are really not well thought out, impulsive, um, simply because you're bored and then you will have unintended consequences. And then you can either learn from that or keep making mistakes. So I make much better choices now. I am not as impulsive as I used to be, but I no longer fight the fact that I crave change. And for example, when I haven't seen someone for a while and we run into each other or connect online, most people ask, how are you? I ask, what's new? Because I, I am interested in what's new. And as a result, I used to think that this meant I was flaky, that this meant I was immature, that this meant I didn't have what it takes to make and honor commitments. What I understand now as a person with ADHD is my brain works differently and it actually needs a lot of stimulation. And that stimulation can come in the fact of trying different things, experiencing different things and it has led to many, many reinventions. I've had four complete careers in my lifetime. This will be my last, but I keep changing what I do and how I do it. I'm also in my third marriage. I used to be very ashamed about that and thought that was a really negative um, reflection on me. I now understand that my first marriage was complete in five years. My second was complete in 15. I have been with my current spouse for 25 years. And so I got better and better over time at choosing people who could be with someone who's constantly evolving. It's not for everybody. I've even changed my religion. I was a, um, I guess the term used to be born again, Christian for about 20 years. And, uh, I ended up leaving the church at the same time I left my second marriage, had no religion for a decade, and gradually found my way into the Buddhist philosophy because I had a serious car accident that left me with chronic pain. And I found meditation for along the way of dealing with the pain. And that eventually introduced me to Buddhism, which makes the most sense to me now. And I've embraced that for about the last 17 years. But in addition to the ADHD, Leslie, I do want to um, acknowledge that I had a very uh, dysfunctional, abusive, traumatic childhood. And while many people are left shattered by that for life, and I have certainly worked with many of these individuals in the past as a therapist, for me, it honed my um, quick thinking, my quick problem solving, and made me the strong, independent, resilient person I am, because I was able to see danger coming and keep myself safe. We all are a product of our environment. That's we sure. are. And we don't I, choose our environment. And so you have to make the best of what you're given. I mean, I don't, you don't have a choice. It's something that I have questioned and been curious about my entire life is why are some children able to not only survive, but thrive in really chaotic, dysfunctional, abusive, unsafe environments? I mean, certainly there, I have emotional scar tissue. I have control issues. I have trust issues, but I, um, I've also had a lot of therapy and done a lot of self-work, but right. I realized that unstable environment made it necessary for me 
to be very observant and to do what I needed to do to stay safe. And it has led to me becoming very resilient, which also, you know, works with the change. Like we moved to Portland. Uh, we've been here for three years. We realized this is not the place for us. And I'm about to move again for the second time in three years. And I, I know many people who've been in the same city for their entire life. That sounds really uncomfortable to me. I would not want that. No, I, I get bored. I definitely get bored. I don't, I don't have ADHD, but an awful lot of people in the fashion business, an awful lot of reporters and writers have ADHD and it yep. serves them very well because they're always looking for what's new. Yes. I have that. I have that interest, but I can't say I have the other, I'm pretty good at focusing and all that stuff, but um, there is people, you know, you have to find the industry that works well for you um, depending on what you bring to it and what your personal skills are. And um, you know, in many places, it's very helpful to be mm-hmm. that kind of ADHD person. You know, it's, it's, it's a must. If you weren't somebody who could spot what was new and you were in the fashion or beauty business, you'd be dead. You'd be out. Actually, my opinion at this point is that I know that, you know, there ADHD, ADD, there's a, there's a lot of controversy around it. Half the people say it's a disorder and a disability and half the people say it's a superpower. What I believe I've lived with this my whole life. I've passed it on to all three of my kids. Thanks mom. And (laughs) it seems to be a more stronger genetic loading when it comes through the mom, because these kids are from two different marriages and they all have it. Um, But what I find now is when you really understand yourself and accept yourself and choose an environment, a, a vocation, an occupation, a path that really honors your true nature, you will not be symptomatic. Yes, you may still procrastinate and be forgetful and be time blind and impulsive. But all of those things can be managed well, if you are in the right kind of career path for you. So I absolutely agree that people with these traits veer towards fast paced, highly stimulating industries where there's a lot of change and fashion and beauty. That's a no brainer. Yeah. And and even in the news business, it's very interesting. A lot of news people, um, especially television people, it serves them very well, very well. Cause they come in, they do it. They're on to the next thing. And Mm -hmm. they look, they're always looking for what's new and that stimulation that's out there. So we're at time. I can't believe it. We're already Mm. at time. What, are two or three how to's real? Like you would tell me if I was going to try to do what you did, I was going to try to change from what I was doing. Um, and maybe I do want to be a serious coach and I want to do it right. Um, what are two or three pointers you would give me, um, you know, and, and when realizing what obstacles there are and what you know, preparation. I mean, obviously you're not going to make as much money as a coach. That's one I'm guessing, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you tell me what, what would you, what three tips would you leave our listeners with? If someone's at there, I'm going to, I'm going to give one thing first for the therapists who may be listening. There are Um, some. Okay. So I 
get hit up all the time by therapists who are thinking about becoming coaches or wondering which coach training program I went to, or basically it's kind of on the down low, like, how, right. can, I, how can I be you? Right. You know? And, <laughs> right. and, and here's the thing. And one of the reasons why is that there is a market, a set established market value for an hour of therapy like in whatever community you're in, there's kind of like the going rate as you will. And if there are people who are like, this is really a very underpaid field. And I think I'm better than the most. And I want to charge more, but I don't know how to do that because the going rate in my community is this. And, and I need and want more than that. Maybe I should be a coach because coaching is unregulated. Oh, it's I see. all over the place. I see so it's what it's, you can get. It's, right. it's really literally whatever, whatever you can get. That's absolutely ah. true. So, but I would say a couple of things. So, so if a therapist is interested in becoming a coach, I don't think every therapist is, is well-suited to coaching personally. Um, but those that are very entrepreneurial probably are. And if you can think about like packaging your expertise in a program rather than the typical therapy, which is a pay as you go, we're figuring things out one session at a time, then you may be well suited to. But for everyone else, um, I would say maybe three things. And of course, because I'm, I'm all about mindset, these are mindset things. One, I think if you feel like you're ready for reinvention, it's really important to know your why. And what I mean by that is, I don't think deciding to reinvent simply because you're fed up, burned out, or bored is not necessarily a good enough reason. Because what I find is when people are running from something, they are not as satisfied as where they end up than the ones who are running to something. So I think there's kind of a necessary process, and usually it's painful and drawn out and nobody likes it. But getting from the point where I can't do this anymore, I need to reinvent, I need to do something else. Just the desire to stop suffering and stop being bored and fed up and burned out. That's not really enough. You really need to have a compelling why for the thing you want to move to, because starting your own thing is a lot of work and you will experience a lot of fear and self-doubt. So you need a compelling reason as your Tesla charging station that you can keep plugging into and charging yourself back up along the way. So that's number one, know what you want to go towards, not just what you want to run from. Two, know whether what you are up for is a pivot or a reinvention. I'm the kind of personality that can make big, bold, sweeping changes in a very short period of time. Most people don't have the stomach for that. And frankly, most people don't need to do that. You may, may be able to take where you are and make a small but meaningful pivot and have a completely different feel about getting up and going to work every day. So know like what your level of tolerance is for risk and for change before you sell your, set yourself on a path because reinvention is sexy and glamorous, but it doesn't have to be a huge transformation. So know that about yourself. And three, regardless of how big or small the pivot or reinvention that you have in mind is, I think it's really important to find role models. That's one of the reasons why Covey is so amazing. 
find role models of other women who are doing the same or similar thing. It doesn't have to be therapist to coach, but other women who are at this age and stage saying, I need to make some changes because it can be lonely and scary and you will get criticism and doubt from the people in your life who want and expect you to stay the way you've been and stay the person that they've known. So having other role models and also a community of support. And if it really is hard for you to move forward, but you know, you really want to, you might be ready to hire a coach. Wonderful. Wow. You spell it out. That's great. Thank you. That's incredibly awesome. And I agree with what you're saying there. It's very, I love the role model thing. I think that's very helpful. And we have not discussed that in 168 or whatever it is interviews. So I, I think that's, yeah, you have to look at people who've done it and, yeah. um, and then talk to them. Yes. So how do people reach you? How do they find you? Well, if you like the sound of my voice and what I have to say with it, I invite you to listen to my podcast, which is called The Driven Woman Podcast with Diane Wingert. And it's on all the podcast players. And if you don't know how to uh, listen to a podcast, you probably aren't listening to this one. So scrap that. Never mind. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, could, you could also actually go to my website and listen to it there. So I invite you to do that. Um, is it I'm dianewingert.com or what's uh, it called? Diane Wingert coaching.com and Diane has a funky spelling. So you'll want to spell that out in the show notes, but you can also follow me on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. I'm really trying to build up my Instagram. Um, And if you already know, like, oh my gosh, I have to spend more time with this woman. I am in the Covey club. Totally totally hit me up there. there. You can totally hit me up there as well. Awesome. Diane, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time and I'm so grateful you're in the club. And I love the fact that you've made this transition and it's, it really is very helpful to illuminate how both things work separately and how they work together. So thank you. You are awesome. So thank you all for listening to this conversation with Diane. I think she's just brilliant and I'm so delighted she's a member of the Covey Club. Come meet her at Covey Club. Come join us at CoveyClub.com. Read the content that we have for you. It's not a lot of junk. It's real great stuff done by real essayists and journalists. And it's talking about how do you reinvent? What are the how-tos? How do you create your personal brand? How do you do that? How do you get yourself started? Anyway, that's what Covey Club is all about. Of course, we talk about more things than that. We talk about everything to do with a woman's life, uh, 40 plus. But reinvention, we are the people. And as we say, we hold a space for you while you figure out what's next. And we connect you, we teach you, and you figure out what you're going to do next. And boy, is it a wonderful process. And I love hearing the women who have come in not knowing what they were doing and saying, I'm lost, I'm drifting, I'm confused. And then it's around two years, two years later, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm being offered all these different things that I had no idea I could do. And I'm trying to figure out which one to pick. And I'm going back to my fabulous group of women I've met at Covey Club to help me decide. So anyway, there you are. Don't reinvent alone. Do it with friends. 
And as I like to say, our motto is, it ain't over till you say it's over. So until next time, we'll see you back here at Reinvent Yourself. Bye.